More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia. And I'm Grace Dietzler. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on ID, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all of the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are very excited to be joined by Dr. Andrew Carpenter, a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Chemical, Biological, and Environmental Engineering, working with Professor Joe Bio. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the show. Um, we know you have quite a varied background um, in terms yeah. of um, how you got to Oregon State, um, but why don't you start with just kind of a, the elevator pitch for what it is you do here, um, what it is you're focusing on. Yeah, so I came to Oregon State to work, as you said, with Professor Joe Bayo over in CBEE. So I come from a pure chemistry background, and so hopping into a bioengineering lab was something a little bit different. And the bare bones of what we're trying to work on is within each of our muscle cells, there are proteins called dysferlin that are anchored to the inside of that exterior layer, that plasma membrane that wraps around the cell and keeps everything inside the cell inside and everything that's supposed to be outside, outside. Mm -hmm. So the way that dysferlin functions at the surface, it's intended to maintain the cellular integrity of that plasma membrane. So as we move about this world, as we exercise, especially if you're over in the gym, you're... Uh, essentially incurring micro tears in your muscles. Mm. And so in order to patch those back up, dysferlin recruits these little balls of lipids called vesicles that are inside your cells, brings them to the surface where the tear site is and where those vesicles can essentially, it undergoes a process we call vesicle fusion and it essentially patches that hole like you might patch a tear or a pair of jeans with a extra slab of denim, except in this case, the um, patch is completely repaired. Um, so we know dysferlin does this. We don't know how it does this. And so mm -hmm. a lot of my research is trying to understand how do different parts of this protein interact with different cell surfaces to carry out this function. So this protein is like the body's seamstress kind of. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, it works in concert with a lot of other proteins, but it is the one that is kind of guiding the process along. And, and these tears that are accumulating, um, this is very much just a normal part of you know, exercise, yeah. using your, ex it's not necessarily that these are traumatic 
tears? Yeah, no, they they aren't necessarily traumatic tears. I mean, our our muscle cells undergo or uh, incur tears on a whole length scale. Sometimes they're so small that the membrane just kind of repatches itself back together automatically. Um, but when they get big enough, it can no longer do that, and so it needs an extra source of lipids. And that is where disferlin comes in to help recruit that extra source of lipids to patch that pair of genes or genes being the plasma <laughs> membrane. <laughs> and where are these lipid patches, so to speak, coming from? Where is it recruiting them from? Yeah, just floating in the cytosol or the intracellular fluid are these vesicles. And vesicles are used to transport uh, small molecules or used to transport... Um, just a lot of different biochemicals throughout your cell. And so they just exist kind of in the background of your intracellular matrix. And so um, dysferlin serves to, again, just recruit them to those ta- or tear sites and start the process of vesicle fusion. So one of the things that you're looking at in your research and one of the things that is um, kind of interesting about dysferlin is that it is prone to uh, accumulating genetic mutations, or it can in some conditions. Um, so can you talk a little bit about those mutations and kind of what they mean? Yeah. Um, on the genetic level, uh, in our DNA, there is a uh, part of our DNA that scientists have decided to call DISF, D-Y-S-F, and that mm-hmm. is just the gene that encodes for dysferlin. And uh, just through random series of mutations, one of those DNA-based pairs might switch, which then will change the amino acid that is encoded when that DNA uh, sequence is translated. And um, that then swaps one of the amino acids in this long sequence of amino acid residues um, for one that isn't necessarily maybe prone to making dysferlin functional. And so there's a lot of different parts to the dysferlin protein, but what we have observed is that kind of mutations that emerge in any part of the protein can lead to a dysfunctional, um, or I guess a breaking of the protein function. However, we don't really understand why or how this occurs. And so maybe it Uh, a mutation gets introduced and the shape of the protein just falls apart. Mm -hmm. A lot of the hypotheses right now look at there's the membrane lipid interactions are very important. And so are these mutations breaking those interactions? Do you see a loss of uh, preference for certain types of lipids in the body versus others? Um, There's, there's this whole series of pathways of ways that mutations could break the function of dysferlin and break this uh, patching of these holes, repairing of the genes. But um, so, yeah, my research is kind of looking at, can we define how dysferlin functions at a lipid surface? And then can we move towards introducing mutations and seeing how does that uh, interaction break? And the eventual goal is that we're looking at such a specific uh, protein cell surface interaction or and yeah, we're, 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 our hope is that eventually somebody might say, oh, that explains why you see the emergence of these pathologies or these instances of muscular dystrophy. So I know we're going to get more into details about the procedures that you use to study um, huh. these proteins and some of their pathologies, but could you maybe describe what some of the consequences for human health would be um, from some of these errors in 
the genetics? Uh, absolutely. So uh, there's a class of muscular dystrophies called dysferlinopathies. So uh, it's named after the protein itself. And there, dysferlinopathies include um, myoshimiopathy, limb girdle muscular dystrophy, and often the clinical um, presentation of uh, these diseases is a wasting of muscles in the arms and the legs. Mm -hmm. And these are late onset muscular dystrophies in that you see them emerge later on in life, maybe into the teens, the 20s, Mm -hmm. the 30s. And so it's not a disease that is immediately presented early on in someone's life. And so, um, I mean, you could find out that you have one of these or you're prone to um, maybe um, presenting one of these diseases earlier on if you have genetic testing done. But um, otherwise, you probably won't present um, with muscular wasting until um, you're in high school or later. And so those are kind of the clinical presentations of a dysferlinopathy is just a wasting of the muscles and the arms and legs. Um, yeah, I think, I think that addresses. Yeah, the for question. sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, one question I had is about that late onset time. Does that sort of imply that the, or we might not know, but um, does it imply that the, the protein was functional before then and then sort of breaks down over an individual's lifetime or. Oh man, that's a really good. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, exactly. Or is it, the accumulation of these micro tears over the lifetime eventually catch up Mm, with the individual? That is a really, really interesting question. So there is some research that looks at uh, the repair of muscle cells. And what they find is that when they knock out this protein, so it's no longer present in the cell, eventually these tears will reheal and they'll repair themselves. Um, there's kind of some redundant mechanisms mm-hmm. within our bodies and in our muscle cells Always. to kind of ensure that, okay, <laughs> we're not just bleeding. Our cells aren't just bleeding their insides out. But even though we see these backup repair mechanisms take hold, there is still damage that is done to the cell. And it's currently thought that um, the influx of calcium from outside of our cells into the cellular interior kind of disrupts a lot of other biochemical action that's happening inside our muscle cells. And that kind of imparts a little bit of a lasting damage. Whether or not that is those muscle cells die instantly or whether they live for a long time, but in a weakened state. um, Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I can't say I come from a physical chemistry background. And so I can't say I'm necessarily the best person to, um, or uh, answer that with uh, assurance or uh, a definiteness, but yeah, there's been some conversations recently in the labs I work with to mm-hmm. that we're just pondering why does it take so long to present, mm-hmm. and even there's some research that's been looking at are people who are more active more prone to um, developing the symptoms earlier on oh, because they are incurring more tears, mm-hmm. and the research isn't quite there yet. So kind of speaking of your physical chemistry background, you use a really almost science fiction sounding method to look <laughs> at these interactions um, that you're talking about here between the protein yeah. and the, the lipid uh, layer. So tell us a little bit about about that. Yeah, so I use a laser-based technique um, where called vibrational sum frequency spectroscopy. And this technique first emerged in the 80s, um, looking at 
actually uh, surfactants at an air-water interface. Um, so surfactants are kind of these soap molecules that if you kind of step back and squint your eyes, they kind of look like lipids almost. Mm. Um, but what it does is it provides us a vibrational spectrum of molecules that sit at an interface or a surface. So an interface being there are two phases, water, air, that surface of the water is an interface or oil water, that region where the two uh, liquids meet is an interface solid air you get the picture these Mm -hmm. are interfaces and so what vibrational spectra are is they are snapshots of molecular motion so the way that the atoms in a molecule vibrate they vibrate in very specific ways depending on what atoms are connected by different types of chemical bonds and so if we understand the way that molecules vibrate, we can start to ask questions about what kind of chemical environment do they exist in. Now, other laser-based techniques that measure molecular vibrations aren't what we call surface-specific. You shine a light through, or you look through maybe a glass of water at the sun, and you can see the sun. It's a little bit blinding. If you look at it through a glass of Coke at the sun or soda, I don't uh, know if we can mention specific uh, uh, sodas. <laughs> I think we're good. But, um, I think we're good. <laughs> but yeah, if you look at a soda, it this light is absorbed, and so it's absorbed by molecules in the container, and uh, that then. The absorption is the photons of light get absorbed, the molecules start vibrating. Well, that is a bulk absorption, so there's a container with lots of volume. Mm -hmm. So again, with vibrational subfrequency spectroscopy, we are looking at just the surface. And so what we do is we take an air-water interface, we put lipids on the surface, and we compress them so these lipids are very tight-packed is what we call it. Imagine you're at a concert and you're near the stage, you're packed in very tight, We do that, but with the molecules at the air-water interface. And then we let proteins float up to this lipid surface and interact with it. And then we shoot the surface with both an infrared laser and a visible laser. And at the surface, those two beams are reflected, but a third beam is generated. And that is the beam that we are interested in because that carries that vibrational spectrum, that snapshot of the molecules that just sit Mm -hmm. at the surface. And we measured the intensity of this light as a function of color or frequency. And by doing this, we can then use some quantum mechanics and some uh, physical chemistry principles to then discern or kind of calculate out how is the protein sitting at the surface? What are the secondary structures? How is it folded? We can look at and calculate how is it tilted at the surface? So what's its structure? And we can even look at the lipids and see how have they been affected um, by the presence of this protein. So that's kind of the technique we use um, to carry out a lot of our work. So that you mentioned that third mysterious beam that kind of jumps off. Um, Is that does that contain information both about the 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 two different phases, or or is it is it specific to just the like you call them surfactants? Yeah, yeah. So. So in my experiments, there aren't any surfactants, Um, but depending on the color of the infrared light, you can actually look at the structure of water molecules at the surface. We can look at the structure of the um, lipids. We can look at the structure of the protein. So really by changing the color of the infrared or the wavelength of the infrared light, we can choose which molecule at the surface we are studying. 
However, the molecules have to be at the surface mm -hmm. and they have to be structured in a way that um, would give rise to this third beam. Sure. Yeah. And so you, you talked about how you can see the kind of orientation or the structure of the lipids at the surface. What do different orientations kind of tell you about what you're looking at or what is the, the kind of relevance of, of them? Yeah, so with this protein in particular, we take a chunk of it and we introduce it to these lipid surfaces. And as it moves towards that surface, we are asking how does it grab onto that, those lipids? How does it bind that lipid surface? And so you could imagine um, thinking about uh, the analogy from the other day that let's say you are sitting or you go to your friend's house. You're going to sit in your, the living room. You're going to watch the Super Bowl um, and you're going to sit on the couch, but it's a really uncomfortable couch. And so your back is rigid. You're kind of in this really upright um, orientation, this upright structure. But then your buddy goes to grab some chips and you take his uh, seat in the recliner and you just kind of lean back. You um, extend, you put your feet on the ottoman and now you're kind of more laid back and horizontal to the ground. And you're in a different orientation, a different structure. Now, the question of what is this, what do these spectra tell us? Well, we can look at when the protein is in these different orientations. We can tell when it's really upright, it's sitting on the sofa, versus when it's in the um, recliner and it's laying flat. And by looking at the different orientations, that tells us about what parts of the protein is it using to grab onto those lipids. And then once you start introducing mutations in later experiments, you can start asking, are we breaking a certain function? Is it no longer able to lay flat to interact with those lipids so it's um, interacting with the surface in a different way because we've disrupted some kind of specific protein-lipid binding interaction? And as I understand, you're often altering the conditions um, in that environment and seeing what changes are made. Yeah. So one example of a recently published study that we did is we look at, we use this uh, spectroscopy technique and we put uh, a specific set of lipids um, where there's a lipid called phosphatidylserine. It's negatively charged and the protein goes up and kind of stands pretty upright um, in the presence of calcium. But if we remove calcium from the aqueous phase, the signal disappears. And the reason why it disappears is the lipid is no longer bound to that surface. And so it's just kind of randomly uh, tumbling around in solution, mm -hmm. it's no longer able to anchor itself to the lipid uh, surface. However, if we swap out the phosphatidylserine for another lipid called uh, PIP2, we see that the shape of our spectra changes. So the way that the intensity looks as a function of frequency. And so we know that it's using a different part of the protein to interact and bind onto those lipids. And then again, we re remove calcium and that signal goes away. And so we can see this calcium dependent binding and the orientation of the protein is changing in response to different lipids. Sure. So yeah. is it known, uh, since you're looking at different lipids, is it kind of known what the lipid vesicles in the cell are made of or are they all different kinds of lipids? Yeah, there's a, been a, there's all different types of lipids, um, but there's been a lot of work to kind of suss out what lipids exist where in the body. And this PIP2 lipid that uh, I mentioned just previously, is it is distributed widely around the body. However, whether it's PIP, PIP2, PIP3, it 
it'll vary depending on what part of the cell it exists in. And so it's kind of a signaling uh, lipid for a lot of different um, intracellular processes. Gotcha. So I think I just realized a gap in my understanding. Um, when When you were placing these lipids there, is that a model of the membrane or of the vesicles that you that the dysferlin is trying to um, recruit? Great question. So it could be both. Um, our model, this uh, just lipid monolayer, is a model of one side of a lipid bilayer. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, to a good approximation, these ves- balls of vesicles are curved. Your external uh, membrane of your cells is curved. But to an approximation, that might look flat to a protein. And so our flat lipid monolayer is meant to uh, simulate one half of a lipid membrane. Um, So it could be the vesicle, it could be the plasma membrane. And so our variation of the composition of lipids is meant to simulate those different cell surfaces. Mm. So right now you're just looking at kind of this synthesized uh, lipid layer as well as just the protein on its own Mm. um, to kind of like suss out the the mechanisms of, of how these molecules interact. Uh, but these proteins, I believe you mentioned in our pre-interview, are actually made by bacteria for the purpose of, of studying? Yeah. So I come from a very physics and physical chemistry-based background. And so the last biology uh, course... <laughs> Uh, I took was in 2010 and we've got a biochemist over here probably just laughing at all of my uh, (laughs) explanations of these things. Um, But so you can use bacteria to synthesize and express proteins. You can introduce the DNA required to create whatever protein you want for study in a process called recombinant protein synthesis. Um, I'm looking over at the biochemist to make sure I have that right. Oh, oh yeah, friend. getting a thumbs up. <laughs> thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's there's a lot of ways to synthesize proteins these days. Um, but one of the ones that I've been most uh, impressed by, and um, this has just been around for a while, but my gap of knowledge coming into this position, <laughs> I was just not exposed to it. It's just the fact that we can hijack bacteria to create the proteins we want to then study. And this is a really easy way to look at the different mutations as well, right? Yeah. I was surprised at how easy it was. (laughs) Um, We can just throw in little bits of DNA and um, some other uh, chemicals, and it kind of chops up the uh, DNA instructors or instructions that we've given to the bacteria and inserts the uh, DNA that encodes for the mutation. And so... In probably a day or two, we can have a new DNA template that will encode for a mutant version of the protein, and then we go and uh, express it, and within a week, we can have a different mutation. Um, Fingers crossed that other things go well, but um, (laughs) yeah. So what are some of the steps to get from this kind of in vitro model towards an understanding of something that would be help or that would, um, you know, give insight into what's actually happening in real living organisms. Yeah. So there's been some really cool research, um, done by a professor at the university of Maryland where they express the entire protein of dysferlin inside, uh, mouse muscle cells. Mm. And they were able to go in and knock out chunk by chunk by chunk different parts of the protein. 
and then they had we call it fluorescently labeled, mm-hmm. but essentially they put a little additional piece onto the protein that when you shine a certain kind of light on it, it just glows. And so they are able to watch where the protein moves around the body or body, um, the cell, as they knock out different chunks. And what they found is that the part of the protein that I've been studying, if they get rid of that, they see that the muscle resealing process just completely goes away. And so there's been some therapeutics uh, proposed where it's kind of using um, viruses to introduce the RNA or DNA required for a um, functional dysferlin protein into a human body. They, the unfortunate thing is that dysferlin the amount of DNA or the length of the DNA you need to encode for those uh, or to encode for dysferlin is too long to insert into Mm -hmm. these virus or for these viral therapies. And so they're thinking about, okay, let's make mini dysferlins that would then replicate the full dysferlins function to then kind of restore proper membrane resealing and um, treat dysferlinopathies. Well, you kind of need to understand what parts of the protein interact and what their proper function looks like. And so kind of our hope would be that by mapping out the ways that different parts of the protein interact with these lipid surfaces and providing a, sh- a strong molecular foundation to what this protein is doing in the body, that somebody would then say, okay, these are the necessary components we need in a mini dysferlin. So then if we're going to try and develop these therapeutics, we know kind of an idea of what the proper function is that we need to mimic. And that may be different in different mutations of the, I guess, different mutations that are causing the different pathologies potentially. Okay. Yeah. And that, that's, that kind of goes back to kind of the, I think, I believe, and again, I'm biased because I'm doing the research, but (laughs) the importance of our research is um, you can look at uh, somebody that presents with a dysferlinopathy and say, oh, there's a breakdown in some function here. You can then go sequence the DNA and say, oh, this is the mutation that has occurred, but you don't actually know what has broken. Mm -hmm. And so um, understanding how it's broken is very important. And it could be a break of these lipid protein interactions. It could be the mutation just blew apart the whole structure of the protein. Um, It could be any number of things. Um, But yeah, the, the importance of doing this work is to try and understand how do certain mutations um, serve to disrupt the proper function, which then leads to the eventual pathology. So, yeah, you're really getting in the weeds for the biology these days, but can you talk about how you sort of came to um, working on biological problems from a physical chemistry background? Yeah. um, So my PhD was spent developing and... um, expanding the use of the vibrational spectroscopy technique that um, I'm currently using. And so I had a solid foundation in the experimental side of what I'm using. Um, I had watched through the literature other people using it to study proteins, and I always thought that was really cool. Um, I studied the surfaces of small droplets of oil um, and kind of studied some 
pretty fundamental phenomenon that occurred at these uh, nano emulsion surfaces. And so, yeah, I had the experimental uh, foundation. And then it was in 2020, um, I was sitting at a table with my now wife in uh, suffering through the fires that were oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. plaguing our entire state. And um, she had just remarked like, oh, the laser tech is at Oregon State. What's going on? And um, I realized and made the connection in that moment that another researcher's uh, work that I'd been following for a while, uh, Joe Bayo, was at Oregon State. And I had always really admired his work and just the diversity of problems he had been working on. And so just cold emailed him out of the blue and one thing led to another and it led to an interview. And um, I was really attracted to the idea of using the technological skills or maybe the experimental skills I'd been developing and applying them to a problem that seemed to impact human health or had the potential to contribute to our understanding of human health. So you are here at Oregon State as a postdoc, and that's a little unusual for inspiration dissemination. We typically interview graduate students, um, so we're very excited to have a postdoc on the show. Uh, But I wanted to switch gears a little bit and kind of talk about that kind of transition from PhD to postdoc. And I think for a lot of our audience, they may not really have a great understanding of what a postdoc is. So maybe we can just start with with that. Yeah. So I have heard, and I think this is accurate, a postdoc position being described as the academic version of a medical residency. Mm -hmm. You've gone, you've gotten your PhD, They don't trust you yet enough in most cases to run your own research lab. Um, And so you go and do research with uh, another faculty member. But kind of jokes aside, it's an opportunity for you to go and expose yourself to different fields of science and research. So whereas maybe some of the technical um, or experimental techniques that we are using in my research now at Oregon State are similar to what I was using in graduate school, the topics are wildly different. And so the hope is that by this process of leaving one field and going into another, this diversification benefits society and that people start to make connections between disparate fields and might start to maybe get a sense of how you one field might be able to contribute to challenges and hurdles in another one. And so most of the time, at least in the STEM fields, uh, a postdoc is research focused. However, you might, um, if you're an undergrad, have experience having a postdoctoral scholar or fellow um, teaching. Sometimes maybe they step in to teach a few courses for um, one of the professors here at Oregon State, or maybe they're running a class by themselves. Um, that's, I wouldn't say uncommon, um, or unheard of, but maybe not the most common. Um, so the step from graduates, the question was the step from graduate student to postdoc. Um, yeah. uh, you get a lot more responsibilities. You are maybe, uh, mentoring graduate students mm-hmm. at this stage. Maybe you're in the really large research labs. Maybe you kind of supervise and oversee one section of a PI or professor's research program, Um, you might take more responsibility for writing research grants, maybe more ownership over the papers that are being written, depending on your experience as a graduate student. Um, But as a postdoc, really the idea is that you are taking more ownership and you're taking more responsibility over the science that you're participating in. 
um, but still under the supervision of somebody who has a good track record of disseminating research uh, and performing good research. Yeah. So these days you're writing your own grants? Uh, I am currently funded by a postdoctoral research fellowship from the National Science Foundation, which I am very thankful for. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so I wrote that grant. Um, I wrote it with the help of my uh, current postdoctoral advisor, Joe Bayo. Um, but I took the lead on that. Mm -hmm. Right now, um, we are also looking at writing grants to some private foundations and also some uh, government agencies. And I have taken a role on writing specific pieces or kind of reshaping a grant or maybe I take a grant and take ownership over that and I'm the primary of writing it. Um, and then, but again, under the supervision of Joe who um, helps me understand, okay, this is what uh, goes into a good grant. This is how we've been successful in the past. Um, again, coming in from a different field, um, it's good to have the insight and oversight of people who've been working in this space for a while. So it sounds like as a postdoc, you have a little bit more independence, but a little bit more responsibility as well. Yeah, more independence, definitely more responsibility, <laughs> um, but it's still seen as like a training position. Yeah. Did it feel like a, a big leap or was it kind of a natural progression from being a late graduate student into? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So the for myself, it seemed more of a natural step and mm -hmm. transition. The lab I came from in my, during my PhD, um, I worked for a phenomenal scientist named Geraldine Richmond, who is now um, helping uh, uh, run the Department of Energy. And in Jerry's lab, uh, we were expected to work uh, really independently. And um, we were expected to have kind of a good grasp on our research and where it was going. We contributed to writing grants. We um, really wrote our own papers. Um, I mean, she definitely <laughs> edited and um, spent a lot of time with us trying to help us understand what made a good publication and how to write them. But yeah, it was a very, I, I came from a more independently operating uh, graduate student experience. And so that kind of leap didn't necessarily uh, wasn't really a shock to the system um, and kind of taking on an independent, more independent role. But um, there's definitely been some aspects to the current position that have uh, taken some adjustment and been exposed to more collaborations and kind of navigating multiple projects at the same time and kind of having to manage more has been something that I've really been learning more about and growing in and learning, yeah, learning how to manage. Yeah, it seems like right now you're kind of really at the intersection of a lot of different fields yeah. um, and, and you work with people in different departments as well. Mm -hmm. So lots of, lots of uh, balls in the air there. <laughs> yeah, and definitely needing to learn to trust and rely on the expertise of others. And I work with some remarkable um, scientists, both in biochemistry and chemistry and different departments. And so it's been fun to learn from their expertise and uh, definitely take advantage of their experiences to learn more about this field. So this idea of a postdoc, um, is it something that should be viewed as a step towards uh, an academic career or um, how do you, how do you see it as 
you know, when people are thinking about their options after graduate school, um, you know, is it more towards the industry side? Am I going to be a postdoc, continue in academia? Where do you think it fits in? Yeah. Bluntly, I will say that most STEM fields, if you want to go be a professor at what we call an R1 institution, so like Oregon State, University of Oregon, research is a really heavy component. You've got graduate students, PhD programs. More likely than not, you're going to have to do a postdoc. Um, There are instances that I have observed from afar where people have been hired straight out of their PhD. Um, I've observed instances where people are hired straight out of their PhD, but then they go work for a few years. So Mm -hmm. their appointment as a professor is deferred. So Mm -hmm. they're still getting kind of that postdoc experience. I think the postdoc is kind of a necessity if you want to go that direction. Um, If you want to work at a college teaching exclusively, that's not necessarily um, something that is a requirement. Um, And that is also going to depend on the STEM field, um, whether or not if you want to become an academic um, at a R1 institution or something like that. Um, what percentage of people have done postdocs or not. But I'm very much over 75, 80% of people, I would be shocked if it was lower than that, have mm-hmm. done postdocs. Um, especially now in today's day and age. Um, and not all postdocs are going to get academic positions. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a really large... Uh, I'm thinking about supply and demand, and I don't know what side of it it's on, but there's a large supply of people interested in uh, academic positions, and there's not a lot of positions out there. Um, for example, um, in chemistry, there's typically somewhere around five to 600 open academic positions each year. There are well in excess of that number of um, postdocs or graduate students applying to them, and so... Uh, yeah, kind of a postdoc then becomes that competitive edge of you've got more experience. And I think there's kind of a national conversation happening right now about uh, kind of the about P, about PhDs, but also about postdocs in that people are having to take on longer and longer postdocs because of these kind of shortages in faculty positions. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the pandemic did not help. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a a blogger and a Twitter personality that helps uh, guide and aggregate all of the chemistry faculty positions. And if you look at the data they've accumulated, I think it was a 50 to 60% reduction in the number of jobs during the 2020 hiring cycle, or I guess, yeah, the 2020 hiring cycle. Um, And so, yeah, that, that did not help to expand the number of people who are interested in a job right now. And so, the postdocs might get longer and longer. I think something we've been seeing in the last year or so is that postdocs have become less desirable to a significant portion of graduating PhDs. Mm. I think there's a lot of conversations surrounding what the salaries look like, especially in Mm. um, larger cities um, other than Corvallis. You look at MIT just raised their uh, postdoc salaries. Um, Stanford, I think, did. The UC system just went through a salary increase. So there's a lot of conversations about what is the value of a postdoc? How do you compensate postdocs? Um, and I know a lot of PhDs that went directly into industry. And mm-hmm. kind of the perspective of some is if you don't 
if you go to a postdoc and then go to industry, that's a couple of years of money on the table that you left. Um, so yeah, I, I don't want to poo poo being a postdoc. I've really enjoyed my time at Oregon state and am really enjoying it. Continue to enjoy it. But yeah, I think there's definitely a trade-offs. Yeah. yeah there's trade-offs there and it's for the person considering a postdoc. There's, I think an internal discussion that needs to happen of just like, okay, what are your career goals? What are you willing to accept for compensation? What are you interested in doing? Are there people you're really interested in working for, et cetera? But there's, there's a lot of opportunities out there and there's, I mean, a lot or increasing amounts of support out there, um, for postdoctoral, uh, scholars. So maybe that's a good time to jump in with what is one of our kind of closing traditions um, here at ID. Um, We always ask, what is your favorite thing about what you do? Um, You know, we talked about some of the the pros and cons of postdoc, but um, what is it that makes you excited to be in the lab there? Yeah, uh, man, you you had told me this question was coming (laughs) and I should have had a better prepared answer. I think... The I, the sense of I get to be curious again. Um, I mean, when you start your PhD, you don't know a lot. And so you get to be really curious about a lot of different topics. Like I get to be curious about how, do the, how does this laser work? Maybe for a little too long because it <laughs> keeps breaking on me. I get to be curious about, um, yeah, what, whatever experiment I'm running. And so coming to a new position with a new um, topic and a new, whole new field, I just get to be curious again. I opened up a biochemistry textbook for the first time ever coming to this position and was just blown away by just probably the simplest facts. Um, And so that's just been something I've really enjoyed. And just even having, uh, as Liam Neeson says, my own particular set of skills, (laughs) um, if I find a chemical that really interests me in the lab and I just want to go throw it in front of the laser to see what does it do or like design my own sets of experiments to kind of run on the side, um, I have the knowledge and ability to do that and just be curious in a new way. Um, yeah, I think just the opportunity to exercise my curiosity again has been, or not again, but in a new way, mm-hmm. uh, has been really refreshing. That's really interesting. You're at like a confluence of like the know-how, but then still the, like yeah. feeling like a beginner in a new yeah. area. I have technical skills, but so much ignorance <laughs> and I just get to stumble through, uh, learning. <laughs> I'm right at the end of my PhD and I feel kind of the same way actually. <laughs> like I've acquired all these skills throughout the years, but I feel like I really don't actually know that much. Yeah. In fact, I've just learned about all the things out there that I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, getting a PhD is kind of in a way just this exercise in learning how much you don't know yeah. and mm-hmm. then learning a lot about a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, our second tradition here on the show is for you to give a piece of advice. So tell us what that advice is and who it's for. Yeah, I think this is maybe just for anybody considering a PhD or even a postdoc. Um, But I think the idea that you matter and that your time is your own and there are resources or I guess mental health is a significant priority. Um, the, I think the rates of um, just depression in graduate school and postdocs and the loneliness and isolation that can come sometimes during the p- whole process is really um, 
striking to me. And so I think my first piece of advice would just be get involved, um, either on campus, with your lab, other people in your department. I think it's really cool. This was my experience in graduate school. To just meet people outside of the university that have no relationship to your research. Um, For full transparency, my PhD took seven years, and a good four years of that was just learning to get my experiment running properly. And so just in that time when nothing's working, it was really helpful to me to have people whose lives didn't fluctuate depending on how well a laser was working that day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so... That just benefited me greatly in my mental health. But I think the second thing, so first thing is advice, part A, I guess, is just surround yourself with a community of people that you trust and that you know care about you. And whether that's in your department, your lab, outside the department, it doesn't matter. Just finding your people, I think, is really important. Then I think just it's okay to take your mental health seriously. And um, this is something I probably could have done a better job of during graduate school. And... um, I wish I'd taken advantage of like more like counseling resources. Um, I've gone to counseling since and it's been awesome. Uh, But I think, yeah, mental health is just such an important thing at every stage of the game that I would just, I would encourage anybody to take it seriously and get involved with community because I don't know, I felt my mental health is great when I'm around people I know who care about me. And I think this is a great place to plug Oregon State's counseling services. Oh, absolutely. Uh, graduate students, uh, these services are available to you um, as well. Counseling and psychological services or CAPS uh, can help you. You can see a counselor one-on-one. There are also groups for graduate students that provide support. So, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, take Andrew's advice. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd encourage anybody listening now or later that, yeah, it's never too late to take your own mental health seriously. And I think it's really, really important. Great advice. Um, so we do have one final tradition and that was that you picked a song. So I'm going to go ahead and get that pulled up, but do you want to say a word about this song and maybe why you picked it? Oh man. Uh, so this is my favorite band, me without you. I got COVID right when I was supposed to be going to their farewell tour. And that just absolutely gutted me. Yeah. So, this is off of their uh, Untitled album. That's actually the title of the album, Untitled. It was their last album released a few years ago. Um, but yeah, Me Without You, I think it was Winter Solstice. Winter Solstice. Yeah. Well, without further ado, this is Winter Solstice by Me Without You. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been awesome. We really enjoyed chatting with you. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in tonight. Stay curious, my friends. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. 
This show was started by Jean Camvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>